Welcome back to the Society Case Files podcast. My name is Robert and I'll be your host. Today I'm going to discuss the October faction. It'll be pretty spoiler heavy. I'm also going to talk about World of Warcraft and the progression of the game from the time that it came out until the present. And then I'm going to sum up with some vampire stuff. Got a lot to talk about, so I'm going to dive right in. The first topic, and probably the most modern or recent thing that I will be talking about today, is The October Faction, a Netflix show that apparently was based on a uh, graphic novel and uh, came to the to the small screen. Um, I can tell you that this show was an interesting premise to me because of the things that I write and the stuff I like, uh, so it wasn't a hard sell to give it a shot. What happened, however, is that once I got into it, I found way too many flaws for me to recommend the show to anyone. So before I get into spoilers and what I didn't like about it, I'll try and keep it a little bit more general. Uh, the first two episodes just grabbed me. I wanted to see more. I, in fact, couldn't wait to get to the next episode. And over the course of the next few days, we binge watched the rest of the entire series. It was it was really hard to watch the last few episodes when I had already got to the point where I didn't like what was happening and how they were presenting things. But uh, the one thing this show had over others is that oftentimes people tell me, you know what, you'd love this show, but you got to watch three or four episodes before you can get into it. And I found that this one was a bit more old school in the sense that they grabbed me right from the get-go. Uh, they attacked it from the perspective of you need to watch this show as opposed to trusting that for whatever reason you'll give them four hours to prove themselves and I liked that a lot in fact that was something that I just was was gushing about when I first started the show but at a certain point it just became obvious that the savaging that I saw online was justified because at first for the first few episodes I'm like man what are people upset about well I figured it out um so if you don't even listen to anything else after this, just know that I do not recommend The October Faction. It is way too many episodes for you to waste your time on what basically amounts to complete tripe. I mean, it's like they didn't bother to think through the story elements. And it's just so lazy that I, I don't even know what happened. It's like they burst everything awesome they had at the very beginning and then just lost steam towards the end. So what I'm going to talk about now and for the next few minutes are heavy spoilers about the October faction. So if you're going to take my advice and not watch it and you just kind of want to know why I hated it or if you watched it and you didn't like it or whatever, uh, the next few things will explain what, uh, what I thought was wrong. Now, on that note, if you absolutely love the show, then just stop listening because I don't want to crap on something that you loved. If you really, really liked it, then there's not much reason to listen to someone trash on it. Um, one of the main things that I want to emphasize about this is that as a creator, it's important to occasionally give a piece of, of fiction or television or entertainment of any sort a very critical eye so that you can sort of understand what they did. And then maybe ensure that you don't do that kind of thing with your own work. And so I'm approaching this criticism from that perspective. The perspective that 
I wanted to learn from what was wrong. And that's one of the reasons that I ended up finishing the show, despite the fact that I was just disgusted by a lot of the choices they made. So one of the big problems with the October faction is that they spend a lot of time at the very beginning telling you how amazing the, the, the two agents are, the two primary agents. And they give you the impression that they are among the best of this organization. And quickly, you kind of discover that they really aren't. And that might just be because they're kind of burned out and losing their stride. But the way that they convey that is a little loose because the characters themselves mention that they feel a little burned out. But at the same time, they act like they aren't. And a lot of what they do doesn't really convey that they are tired or screwing up. They don't necessarily make huge mistakes in that regard. Most of their mistakes come from the idea that they uh, don't communicate well. And that's another point I'll bring up in just a moment. But as far as them being the best, I'd hate to see the average guys. Actually, we do. They just get murdered. But um, so that's that was definitely one of the biggest problems that I had with the show was that. And, and by the way, this is a problem from many many different pieces of entertainment these days where the people uh, the writers spend a lot of time telling you how amazing the characters are and then commence to have them fail continually in sometimes embarrassing ways star trek was guilty of this nobody could succeed in the first star trek movie uh, that came out with chris pine and zachary kinto um and it's just annoying because we could just show them being cool or we could just show them being lame, but we shouldn't talk about one or the other and then prove otherwise. Um, Presidio, the group that they belong to, they're just, they're idiots. There's so many things that they do that makes you wonder how this organization isn't just a fledgling group of practically modern day terrorists bungling through whatever it is they think they're doing. Uh, one of the problems is, is that towards the end, they round up all these people and they just kind of let them wander around. And then when they decide to basically riot, they just overwhelm the guards and kick the crap out of them. And it makes no sense. Why wouldn't they secure them? By the way, they were planning on murdering them all. <laughs> they were going to purge this town. So they just let them walk around. I mean, if even one of those people would have got wind of that, they could have started the riot, but it didn't even matter because something else came up and they went crazy. And furthermore, they didn't secure their primary assets, the ones that they knew were supernatural. They were allowed to wander around pretty much untethered. So those are those are two huge problems that Presidio showed. But, I mean, we can take the next step. They, I mean, I got the impression they were probably always pretty shifty and, and, and not very good. But very suddenly, they're like murdering their own people at their workstations <laughs> while they're doing things. It was, it was really just like all of a sudden, we need them to be very black hat. Now, I don't know if they're following the graphic novel uh, directly, and they might be, and maybe, maybe they were written that way. But I think that when you translate a piece to another medium, that's your opportunity to solve problems as opposed to just translate them in and keep them exactly the same. Because had you not read the graphic novel like me, then you wouldn't be prepared for that level of, of craziness, whether, you know, the, the things that I already mentioned. And furthermore, when 
the creepy warlock breaks in to one of their field offices, basically, and murders their two agents and steals a bunch of data, they just are pretty casual about telling other people about it. And they're just like, yeah, someone got some info, whatever. And it just seems like they should have probably known what files were accessed because they are pretty high tech, but whatever. They didn't, they didn't bother to go that route. I would like to liken the Presidio with the Illuminati or Arachi from the secret world, but in the secret world, those two organizations are actually pretty competent. They're just up against overwhelming odds. Whereas in the uh, Presidio, they're not really, they're not really fighting overwhelming odds. They're fighting nomads and wanderers. And occasionally these, these warlock creatures turn out to be pretty nasty, but otherwise it's, it's pretty much that. And while we're on that topic, these guys are about as tactical as some weekend warrior paintballer guys. I mean, these, watching them move around rooms and stuff, it's like they didn't have a technical advisor to really help them to behave as a paramilitary unit that they're supposed to be. And that's true of not only the Presidio, but the group of supernaturals that show up to hunt the warlock, and they were complete maniacs too um they show up they look cool they've got a bunch of high-tech gear these biometric guns that only they can fire and so on and so forth but as soon as they get out in the wilderness they all split up and they all just die one at a time and it made no sense it's like why'd you all go i mean just send one guy if you're just gonna let them all die like that um other insane things a completely normal human being shoots themselves in the gut with a glock and they're up and moving in a couple days no problem just you know a, a, a mild limp but still capable of doing what they need to do um that was ridiculous and i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna drop that one right away um so towards the end of the show the warlock has basically summoned back all of her people that had been murdered by presidio and put them into the bodies of the townspeople. So the best agents show up. The two main characters and this uh, this one guy who hangs out with them. He's a supernatural. And they show up at the carnival where they're all being held. They sort of have the drop on them. They're like, all right, let's do this. They literally charge in and they either die or get captured in less than 10 seconds. It was absurd. I have no idea what that was about but that's that's how they chose to resolve that situation and it just undermined a whole series of of show that you'd watched where these characters are supposed to be so amazing why would they have done that why would they charge in i mean they didn't even try to be tactical or stealthy they literally just walked inside and died um ridiculous so then Presidio itself has taken over the city, and the sheriff, returned from her fresh gunshot wound, has basically taken over with her people, and they're driving around doing some stuff, and they come upon a Presidio roadblock, basically, and she's like, hey, I need to get by, there's a verbal confrontation, and then she pulls her gun and she murders people, and then it sort of has this weird cut, and it does some stuff, and somebody gets killed, and then the show kind of just ends. And it ends in such a way that is really strange. I mean, one of the main characters is dead. And his his funeral, which we don't even see, it's just his grave. And everybody seems pretty much okay afterwards. Pretty much right after the sheriff murdered 
some guys on the street, she's bringing coffee to people. It was really bizarre. I felt like I literally fell asleep and missed half an hour or even an entire episode where, where things were properly resolved. They just didn't do a good job of it. There was no mourning for the death. There was no, there was no uh, backlash for the actions of the other characters. Uh, Presidio is now being controlled by one of the uh, by the, the the main character who passes. Mom seems to be in charge now, and they kind of left it on a cliffhanger ish. I mean, it's resolved, but not. And I just can't even imagine how they're going to go to the next step. You know, there's moments where they, they made it seem like one dead character might come back and, and do something amazing, but he never did. You know, it just, I don't know. It's, it, it felt lazy. It felt like somewhere along the, lo- the, the uh, somewhere along the way, they were just like, ah, oh, whatever, we got this. Let's just, let's just release it. It's fine. And I saw one of the reviews say that quality control just was asleep on the job when this show came to Netflix. And I have to agree. I feel like there was a lot of things that they just needed to fix. Uh, You know, a lot of people were unhappy about the kids because they're really obnoxious. And I have to agree. They were very annoying. The things they did, the, the, the choices they made, the swiftness in which they turn on the people they've known their whole lives made it feel like there was no past We were given a sense of past because they keep doing these flashbacks. And we were also told things like, you know, we've been a very close family. But I didn't get that sense because everyone was willing to pretty much wash their hands of each other very rapidly. There was not really a whole lot of discussion behind that at all. Not enough motion in the story to make it seem like that made sense. You know... It's a TV show. It's supposed to have more time than a movie. We shouldn't have the same problems that films have that are two hours long. When we've got a 10, you know, nearly a 10 hour show, they should have plenty of time to create that sort of angst and the conflict and make it all make sense. And if they don't add one or two more episodes, I mean, is it really going to be that big of a deal? Um, by not doing that, we end up feeling a little shortchanged by the way that the events resolve and they just don't make sense. It's kind of like when I watched The Return of the King in the theater, I obviously I, I still loved it, but it felt like I was watching an extended trailer because the cuts were too tight. There was just each scene was a little bit too short. And then when the full version came out uh, on, on Blu-ray, I watched it then, and I have to say that it felt fantastic. It was properly paced. It had everything it needed. And while I understand why they didn't release a nearly five-hour movie into the theater, it was essential to be that long. And they they had that version available. And it's the same thing with the October Faction. They really needed another episode to flesh some things out. So to fix the October Faction, these are the things that I would suggest they needed. Number one, they needed a technical advisor. They needed somebody to help them with all the tactical stuff so that the characters moved more realistically, more for the groups than the individuals. I'm talking about the Presidio paramilitary guys. They needed a little bit of training so that when they came into a situation, they looked like they were actually a team of guys. And furthermore, 
they really needed somebody to write those scenes better so that they made sense when they were, say, clearing a building or doing any of that stuff. I mean, the group-ups of them was... It was just... It looked like they were amateurs who played a lot of Nintendo as opposed to guys that were supposedly the, you know, cream of the crop units that they were supposed to be. So that's the first thing. The second thing is they needed to be a little bit more patient and sell the story with maybe one or two more episodes. For once, I can say that this show needed more time and not less. Some of the shows, they add filler to get it up to 13. In this case, they cut too much to get it down to 10. Um, And then finally, they really should have focused a little bit more on making everybody make sense with the histories they created. They needed to adhere to it rather than piss on it and throw it away by the end of the show. Because the characters don't act like they've known each other forever at a certain point. You know, it leads up to that. I will tell you, the first few episodes, you're like, this is obviously a family. They have fantastic chemistry and they make sense. But then after that, it just falls apart. And I think that maybe they were getting a little too stylistic by doing the flashbacks to try and kind of show certain things happening. But, you know, ultimately, they could have done a lot better job with two more episodes. So both of those those last two points come down to a little bit more time, just a little more time to cook it because we really needed it and we didn't get it. And I don't think that a season two is necessarily going to help. I don't think they're going to draw back a whole lot of, of people uh, based on some of the reviews I've seen. I mean, there's some, some brutal stuff and uh, I can't, again, I can't advise anyone to see this show. I just, I can't. Unless you really want to sort of explore a few elements of what not to do. If you want to use it as a study guide, then absolutely. But otherwise, no, I did not I did not care for the October Faction. Before I move on to something else, though, I do want to say the actors in the October Faction were all amazing. I loved every single one of them. Even the annoying characters that, that bothered me during the show, I still loved the way their actors portrayed themselves and carried themselves and did their work. They were all great. I didn't even get into the stereotyping and those problems. There's plenty of reviews that trash that. I'm more focused on the story stuff. I will say that the stereotype stuff did annoy me. And just the very typical teenage nonsense was was pretty ridiculous. But that that is so minor compared to the other sins that this uh, show committed. But anyway, October Faction, do not recommend. Let's move on. Talk a little bit about World of Warcraft and the progression that game has made from the very beginning days until the the modern incarnation that we know now. I was thinking about it the other day. A friend and I were talking about the only thing that would really kill World of Warcraft, and, and I mean actually kill it, would be to put out World of Warcraft 2. But as I was thinking about it, I realized that they've already done World of Warcraft 2. They just kept it under the same name. But if you look at some of the features and things that changed along the way, it would make sense to suggest that they have already made a new version of the game several times, in fact. I would say that we are almost up to World of Warcraft 4 based on how much they've altered the game throughout the expansions. So in the first game... It was pretty straightforward. You just went to 60th level. They had some high-end stuff to do, but I know a lot of people ran out of things to do pretty early on because they were just fanatics about it. Um, 
that's where we get some things like the long ass paladin quest to get your your epic mount and the same for the uh, warlock and just just different little things like that to keep you busy and to keep you grinding until they released the burning crusade and then when the burning crusade came out they added 10 more levels they added a big old continent uh, they added a whole lot of great stuff and um that's when i think battlegrounds really got their footing because the first incarnation of them was actually pretty brutal especially when you got alterac valley and that could last hours upon hours and then by burning crusade all of that fell into place and it really started to feel fantastic and and that's when i came back to the game and played it like a maniac i absolutely loved that expansion it was great but for me the height of world of warcraft when it was at its absolute best was the wrath of the lich king that brought things like the group finder for dungeons which i used a lot uh it brought the argent crusade uh i'm sorry the argent tournament which i really enjoyed playing and just a whole lot of interesting stuff and by then when you started a new character you now had a ton of stuff to do i mean plenty I mean, at this point of the game, there's so much to do, it's actually a little daunting. But back then, with three good expansions under its belt, World of Warcraft became what I feel was a complete game. And if I was to label it, um, Classic through Wrath of the Lich King is World of Warcraft 1. When they moved on to the next phase of World of Warcraft, where they changed talents so that you were no longer doing the big talent trees that we had before and sort of change the way you level that's when we moved into world of warcraft 2 with cataclysm is really the time that we started to see what i consider the sequel and let's look at that for a minute that's when we changed talents as i said but also it's when they changed the initial world the beginning plots of everything so you weren't doing the same old stuff you'd done before in the classic world where for example if you started a paladin you start out fighting you know some some wolves around the area and then you move around and 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 just sort of kill kobolds and that sort of thing but there's an actual little story in northshire that takes you over to fighting some orcs that are burning crops and and then uh the whole of elwyn forest is a different experience and and same with west ridge uh when you go in there and you find that you uh get caught up in a murder mystery and all that stuff and i mean the landscape itself had changed it was it was quite different i was really proud of them for making that change because it revitalized the early stages of leveling up your character and you had a lot more control over where you went so you're able to go to zones that maybe you'd seen plenty of times before and have a fresh experience with them that sort of still embodied what happened before in a lot of ways but was different enough to where you didn't feel like you just basically were doing the same thing over and over again, which for Altaholics, that was probably fantastic. So basically, we're looking at initial game comes out, and then they released the Burning Crusade in 2007. They released the Wrath of the Lich King in 2008. And then World of Warcraft 2 essentially came out in 2010 with Cataclysm. And then two years later, we got Miss of Pandaria, which sort of continued on the Cataclysm vein. Only now we've got uh, the big new island, so we've even got more to do. And we got uh, a new race with the pandas, that, and they could be uh, technically neutral because they could join whichever faction you wanted after doing their initial scenario. 
And then you got a lot of interesting new things going on there, but not, not dramatic changes. There were not huge changes to the way the game played. Then we got Warlords of Draenor. Now, Warlords of Draenor brought a lot of new things to it. It brought the garrison, which, love it or hate it, was a very different thing for the game. It was as close to housing as we'd ever had in World of Warcraft. You got the ability to send people on missions. You sent out these characters on these on these table missions, and they'd go off and do stuff for hours or however long it took. Build your... Um, your seagoing vessels and all this other stuff and and even have an auction house if you were patient enough to to gather the goods to do it and your garrison became a little town that you basically ran which was pretty cool for me um but i'd say that that warlords of draenor is when we get world of warcraft 3 because it's changed so much. I mean, the focus is now on this much larger scale for your higher-end characters. I mean, they're not just heroes anymore. They're leaders of towns and, and groups, and they've got followers doing their bidding. And Legion takes it a step further with the class hall. So we got rid of the garrison, and now it's just sort of rotting out there, you know, wasting space. But now we've got Legion. So you've got your class halls, wherever they might be. I play a rogue. Mine's in Dalaran. And you've got a, a campaign to play through, which I've done the Paladin and the Rogue, and I have to say, I enjoyed both of them. They also brought those legendary weapons into the game, which uh, everybody, I'm sure, knew that when the next expansion came out, they'd be rendered mostly useless. But, um, I mean, they were really cool. They they leveled up themselves, so we've got yet another thing to, to do. And so... All around, I'd say that the Warlords of Draenor through Battle for Azeroth was World of Warcraft 3. And as we look at the next expansion coming out, Shadowlands, I have to say that that looks like World of Warcraft 4 for a lot of reasons. Uh, primarily, they are reducing the level uh, cap. So we were at 120 for uh, Battle for Azeroth, and now they're going to squish it down to 60. So... You basically level through whatever zone or expansion you want. You talk to Chromie, and she hooks you up, and then you, you level your first 50 levels that way. And then the last 10 are in the new zone, and there's there's a whole bunch of new stuff in that zone. There's the Covenants. There's a whole bunch of videos about it. I've only kind of scraped the surface about what's going on there, but it, it really does change the core fundamental of how you play the game and what you're doing. So... While I always thought that a sequel to World of Warcraft might kill the game, they were pretty smart in how they did it by improving the graphics here and there, bringing them up to a more modern standard, keeping things mostly the same. So you always have your same characters. You've got all of the loot and all the gear, and you still have all this stuff to do. And then they just release expansions that change the game enough, kind of modernizing it in many ways, and therefore, they never actually kill their original game. They just continue to expand upon it. And if Destiny would have done this, if Destiny 2 would have come out and had Destiny 1 pre-built into it, so you could have played through Destiny 1 on the PC or on the other games by buying it, or maybe as an expansion, they called Destiny 2 an expansion, just named it something else then it would have had all that content as well. And it would have been better at launch for a lot of people who hadn't played Destiny 1 before. You could go through and do all that stuff. They wouldn't have had to convert a bunch of 
dialogue options for the PC since you never got to play Destiny 1 if you didn't have a console. I think that in a lot of ways, World of Warcraft did it right. I think that it was really smart of them to essentially just modify their game rather than ditch it and call it World of Warcraft 2 and maybe or maybe not have the ability to transfer characters in. You know, people put some ridiculous amount of hours into this stuff. I I don't even want to go look and see how much I put into my rogues. So I think that by doing it this way, the really diehard players never really feel betrayed per se. And I know that Activision and Blizzard are doing a lot of crazy stuff right now that's got them under the gun. But in this particular case, and based on just what I'm talking about, I think this was a really good call. I'm actually looking forward to Shadowlands. I've had a great time playing again. I've really been pushing to try and get flying. And I'm actually very curious how much of my time I'm wasting based on when Shadowlands comes out and whether or not they'll obsolete the Pathfinder uh, achievements that you have to get for that. But in any event, that's sort of my my thoughts on, on the Warcraft... Uh, life cycle so far and what they've done to avoid having to create a bona fide sequel i think that in the background they've been creating sequels we've been playing the sequels all this time those of us who've been playing so pretty neat stuff um i'd love to hear what you think about that if you've played world of warcraft or if you love the game or hate the game why you know what point made you turn away at what point did you stop loving the game a lot of people uh have a specific point or something that came up or something that happened that they just didn't like and they never came back. So I'd love to hear it. But uh, anyway, that's it about World of Warcraft. Let's move on to the vampire stuff. So I continue to watch vampire movies. I've been keeping up. I just watched Return to Salem's Lot, a ridiculous movie all around, but kind of fun. Um, it's kind of based on one of the short stories where somebody just shows up at Salem's Lot and gets eaten. Uh, and this expands it out. The main character is an anthropologist and the vampires want him to write them a Bible. Uh, if you can find it for free, I would uh, I would recommend the movie. Uh, it's it's just fun enough to, to kind of enjoy the, the foolishness that goes on there. It doesn't... And there was not a lot of thought put into the story. <laughs> There wasn't a lot of thought put into anything about it, in fact, but that doesn't make it any uh, any less fun, if you don't mind, just utterly ridiculous um, vampire action. Uh, there's, you know, the funny thing is, is that the the mini series with Rob Lowe and the old one with David Soul, both of those have a sense of small town community that I think you find in a lot of Stephen King work, but in the case of the return to Salem's lot, it feels like a medieval village that somehow has managed to modernize a little bit. It's very strange. It doesn't have the same feeling. And I think they wanted to find that, but they just, they couldn't quite, couldn't quite grasp it. And that's a little sad, but, uh, you know, what can you do? It's a, it's a cheap, low budget, uh, sequel to a movie that if it was going to get a sequel it needed to be a lot different than this (laughs) so all right so there's that one and then i wanted to talk about the movie innocent blood and that's a movie that came out in 1992 and it was john landis directed it and it was originally going to be something like a parisian vampire in america or something who knows anyway it's uh it's actually 
pretty fun. If you haven't seen it before, this French female vampire is in New York and she gets caught up in the mob and she starts eating people and she accidentally turns one of them and it gets really bad. So she has to team up with a cop and hunt him down and stop him. Yeah. If you haven't seen this one, this is another one that I actually recommend. I recommend it more than Return to Salem's Lot. Return to Salem's Lot is if you are a diehard vampire person and you've just got to see vampire movies and you've exhausted your other options. Innocent Blood is actually a vampire movie that I recommend to pretty much anybody. It's it's supposed to be a comedy, and I guess there's some funny parts, but it's the same kind of comedy that Vampire in Brooklyn is that you're like, mm, I'm not really finding this that funny because it's pretty horrifying. But um, in any event, I say watch Innocent Blood if you can. It's got uh, Anne Parlo, who was in La Femme Nikita, and she's great. And then pretty much every Italian actor ever who shows up as a character actor in mafia movies is also in this. So super fun. Um, I bought it, so I'm not entirely sure where it's available. But uh, hunt it down and find it. You'll enjoy it. One last thing about vampires. It relates to my comic that I've been building. It's called uh, Malevolence. And it is a erotically charged graphic novel style book and um it's inspired by all these hammer films i've been watching and carmella and that kind of thing i was gonna post this up on the coffee site but uh it has a little bit of nudity in it and funny story about that i'm gonna get into in just a moment but malevolence is really the my melodramatic love letter to all of those old movies i've been having a blast doing it the first chapter is already done i'm working on the second one and I've only started it at the beginning of the month of February. So if you really love vampires, um, I'll have the link below. This is a great uh, example of it, in my opinion, in my not-so-humble opinion, apparently. But the funny story is there's a panel in this comic in the first chapter where the vampire feeds. And it's I made it pretty graphic. I mean, she's got blood on her. She's drooling. The person is messed up below her. And that made it past the coffee. They don't care. They're like, whatever. Murder? Thumbs up. But then there's a scene of the vampire lying in bed and her breasts are exposed. Nope, can't do it. And it got removed. And I just found that funny that we censor someone who's nude. They're just like hanging out. There's no sexual content. Nobody is there with them. They're literally just laying there. There's no touching of any kind. And yet that is censored over someone being brutally murdered. Now, of course, I've had this conversation before in real life with people about how in America specifically, you could practically have any kind of violence you want, but if there's even the hint of immodesty when it comes to nudity or sex, you're done. And oddly enough, you know, we turn to HBO and somebody is having gratuitous, violent sex, and people are like, well, that's... That's cool. But yet in other mediums, it's it's not really that okay. And in actuality, in this case, from Coffee's perspective, it's because of PayPal. PayPal has some kind of purity clause or whatever, and since a lot of the money comes through there, uh, they can't risk it. Uh, so they just pretty much deny all forms of, of nudity and sexual content. But I find it funny that we are so puritanical uh, in some ways that we can't even allow somebody to be 
partially naked without it being censored. But anyway, if you want to check out Malevolence, it is currently being shown over at the uh, Tapastic site, which I'll link below. And I might be posting it on Patreon as well, because Patreon is a little bit looser about that stuff as long as you mark it properly. So I'll post everything that's done at Patreon, but it will be trickling out at Tabastic. So um, look forward to that if you love the Carmilla story or vampires in general, because it really does embody all that stuff. A big influence was a movie called Vampire Journals, which I'll talk about next uh, week. But it and that's a very silly full moon video, by the way. So just a warning. That one takes it to the next level when it comes to melodrama. In any event, that is all for this week. I want to thank you very much for stopping by and listening to the show. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more, please visit www.ko-fi.com slash societycasefiles or www.societycasefiles.com. Thanks again. Have a great week. Bye.